Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Charles Fishman. I'm Wolf Tyvee, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined by Matt Ellison today. Hi, Wolf. Hi, everyone. So this week, our special guest is Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, which tells the story of the Apollo program, not from the perspective of the astronauts, but from that of the institutions on the ground. So we love the book. So we wanted to bring on Charles to talk in more depth about America's grand projects like Apollo. So welcome, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. Great. <laughs> America's Great grand you. projects. We're going to talk about all of them. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully, at least at least with a focus on the moon stuff. But but let's let's delve into the other ones as well. So as usual, we're joined by our live audience of Palladium members and friends. The conversation will be recorded and we'll rebroadcast it on YouTube and as a podcast. To become a Palladium member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit palladiummag.com slash subscribe. The plan is for Matt, Charles, and me to have a discussion for about half an hour and then move to questions with our live audience. So please be sure to use the Q&A function in Zoom to post your questions and upvote other people's questions. So let's get started. Matt, you can lead. Charles, so I think um, somewhere to start would be, it's uh, difficult for us, especially perhaps the younger generation, I think, to appreciate just how different American was when Kennedy announced in 1962 that we would land a moon, a man on the moon by the end of the decade. In a piece last summer for Fast Company, you wrote that you can't talk about landing about, about the moon landing without mentioning cigarettes. Now, all these years later, we're talking to you over Zoom from across the country. So perhaps you could set the stage for us and uh, go into just how different things were in the 60s and, and when, when this was happening. Well, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny that you 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 bring up uh, cigarettes as a as a kind of symbol of mm -hmm. transformation. When the first astronauts were introduced, the Mercury Seven, it was a it was a huge national event. I think it was 1958. Um, we we could somebody in the audience could instantly check for us, <laughs> but. Um, there had been there was a lot of attention focused on who was going to be in the astronaut corps, and um, the the rollout of the first astronauts was a you know w w was an extraordinary moment, hard to hard to even compare with something going on now. You know, a, a moment of complete national attention, and and at the press conference, the actual live press conference, the head of NASA was there. Uh, the head of the, the Mercury Man Spaceflight Program was there. The physician, the, the, the doctor who sort of led the team of people who picked these seven astronauts from the candidates was, was on stage, and the seven astronauts were there. And three of the seven astronauts smoked cigarettes during the actual press conference, and so did the doctor in charge of picking them. <laughs> it was really amazing. And actually the third question was a little bit of a cheeky question from a, from a newspaper reporter who said, I'm curious, curious how you guys are going to do in the spaceships without the cigarettes that, that you seem to be smoking right here in front of us. Um, but, but look, America, the, the race to the moon began in May 1961. And uh, America was a completely different place in 1961, even in 1969, let alone compared to now. There had been no civil rights movement. 
Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> blacks in America were disenfranchised and often didn't vote. There had been no women's movement. There was no effective public welfare program at that point. And technology was really something associated in the early 1960s, the late 1950s and the early 1960s with the military. Technology meant Mm -hmm. weapons, specifically the atomic bomb. And it was an era of extraordinary technological progress in a lot of ways that came into people's homes. The 50s saw this, in 1950, almost no one in America had an automatic washer and an automatic dryer at home. And in 1960, two thirds of Americans had both those things. So appliance, it was sort of this boom that, that, that we, we do still associate with the 1950s of, of, of washers and dryers and blenders. And my, my favorite American appliance, which, which I grew up with in the 1960s, the electric can opener which my mother is committed to to this day. I don't really right. understand the need for an electric can opener. But we didn't, we didn't think of those as technology. We thought of them really as conveniences, as appliances. Mm-hmm. And computers were, computers were born to help the military effort, especially during World War II and, and um, the atomic age programs. And th- there's this really amazing moment that, that gives you a sense of, of the, the attitude about computing and the reliability of computing. The first space shot by the U.S. was Alan Shepard in May 1961, just before the moon announcement. But Alan Shepard just went up like a pop fly and back down. He did not go into orbit. Mm-hmm. He barely made it into space. The first orbital mission was John Glenn, literally months later in February. And John's mission was in the hands of an IBM mainframe at what was mission control in the early days was actually at Cape Canaveral. There was actually an identical backup IBM mainframe in the Bahamas in case something went wrong. And John Glenn's mission lasted uh, four and a half hours, something like that. And the IBM computer worked the whole time except for four minutes when it completely failed. So whatever, four minutes, four hours, everything, he was in orbit, and bad was going to happen. That's one thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it was that was the most important computer in the world during that four hours. And IBM could not keep flagship computer working for four straight hours while oh, a guy in space was relying on it. And then... Literally, years later, actually seven years later, from 1962, there were these incredibly sophisticated computers flying the spaceships themselves. They were on the spaceships, and um, the world world had changed. So so the 60s were this time of incredible transformation. 1961... Itself, when when Joe Kennedy stood in front of the nation and said, "Let's go to the moon," it was actually impossible when he said it. And 1961 was really still part of the Eisenhower era compared to, you know, 1969, mm-hmm. the Beatles, the Rolling Stone, the you know, the sexual revolution, civil rights movement. A lot happened in addition to going to the moon in that in that um, right, seven right. eight years. 
Well, I, I mean, so one of the things you're getting at there is about the sort of the reliability of the computers that they were using. And I think one of the points you raise in the book is just how much the Apollo program drove sort of this culture of precision in American manufacturing, especially in uh, the computing industry. And, and so I'm curious to hear more about how, that af- how Apollo affected uh, the rest of American industry and American technology and so on. Like what, what were the, what were the effects there, especially of, of the sort of precision and, and rigor that they had in pursuing the moon mission? Yeah. So the, the, um, I, I, I should have done my math before we turn on the video, but, but the, the spaceships were going five miles a second or six miles a second. So, <clears throat> This was unlike any other undertaking human beings had ever engaged in. You know, in, in World War II, if you put atomic weapons aside, and that, that, that had to be done with incredible precision, but, but gunners were used to frame their targets, right? You fired, you overshot, you, you scrolled back a little bit, you overshot, you, right, right. you zeroed in. You couldn't. The precision necessary to get to them was just extraordinary. You could miss by half a second in, in terms of time. And so Kitty said, let's go to the moon on May 25th, 1961. The very first Apollo contract for for work to be done to go to the moon was, I think it was August 8th. So it was about whatever, eight weeks, seven weeks later, is the contract with my team to provide the navigation to get to the moon. The first contract was, it is really hard to, to get to the moon, and we want to hire the people who are going to do the actual flying first. Before we even have a spaceship or know what the spaceships are going to look like, who's going to build them, let's hire the people who are going to do the flying. So, so this was... it. I think, I, I, I argue in the book, and, and I, I'm happy to engage with people in the audience who, who may know more about this than I do or, or may live in this world. I think Apollo for two things, for the digital revolution that followed, um, for which very little credit, and for an incredible transformation of American manufacturing, um, we kind of take for granted now. So one of one of my other arenas of ridiculous expertise is water. I wrote a book of water. Mm-hmm. I've probably been in twenty build water factories as part of my review about water. I've actually been to Fiji to see where Fiji water comes from. I've been to San Pellegrino to see where San Pellegrino water comes from. Mm-hmm. And and bottled water is produced inside clean room condition. It's all automated. It's all sealed inside a little uh, chamber the size of a small bedroom. It's all ass. No people inside. The first, the first commercial clean room was the facility in which the lunar jewels were assembled. Hmm. It was created in the Grumman factory in Lyland. So what happened with computing in particular, like MIT looked at IBM's performance during John Glenn's mission and said, four minutes of no computing at all on the way to the moon could be a complete bastard. Not only can we not have minutes, everything has to work perfectly for days on end. Mm-hmm. Each moon mission, in fact, they averaged about days, depending on what they were up to, 
you know, whether it was preparatory, actually going to the moon, how long they stayed. Apollo 11 only on the moon 24 hours. Apollo 17, the astronaut actually walking around on the moon for 24 hours. They were there for days. They did three seven-hour moonwalks. So we really grew into this. But the computers had perfectly the whole time. They couldn't fail at all. Yeah. So MIE drove this incredible transformation of both computing and manufacturing. So MIT, on behalf of NASA, was the first and significant buyer of integrated circuits, what we think of as computer chips, in the whole world. And in 1961, they bought 90% of them. In 1962, they bought 80% of them. In 1963, they bought 7% of them. And by 1963, the volume had 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 doubled or tripled. So they were buying a slight smaller percentage, but a much larger volume. And along the way, MIT said to to Fairchild Conductor and Texas Instruments and a few other chip makers, we need chips that are perfect. Here's how perfect they have to be. We'll subject every single integrated circuit to 12 acceptance tests. If one chip fails one test, we're going to send the whole lot back. So they, they immersed right. all the all the chips in liquid freon to make sure they didn't leak, to make sure they were sealed. And they knew if they leaked, because the leak would go up just a little bit. And one chip weighed <laughs> just a little bit more after the freon bath. They just sent the whole lot of them back and said, wow. reject this shipment. We're not even going to, we're going to check the rest of them. And the people at Fairchild and Tech Instruments literally maintained separate manufacturing lines for Apollo. And there's contemporary sort of industry magazine about the early computer industry in which the manager of the Fairchild plant says, those women weren't allowed to do anything else. They're all women. We only let them make chips for MIT because they had to be picked and they learned how to do it. And guess what? We never went back to the old, it turned out no one wanted mediocre. Yeah, yeah, of course. Circuits. So, so we improved the reliability of computer chips by a factor of a thousand. Mm-hmm. And along the way, it, it's funny because we think of it this way now, but what happened with that mission with, with John Glenn and the BM computer, that was typical. People expected computers not to really work right, well right. in 1961 and yeah, 1969. Just, just sort of were, expected that a, a bug could fly into the relays and jam the thing up right, for a while. Literally. <laughs> that, that's right. literally the origin of the term bug, yeah. Right. So so they laid groundwork for the, for the business of integrated circuits. Murphy's, uh, Sabi's law, it's, uh, what's his name? The, the Intel founder, Moore's Law. Moore's Law, yeah. Right? Moore's Law was born in, a, in an academic paper that Gordon Moore wrote in the mid-1960s. And the only organization he meant in that paper is NASA. NASA is the, is the place to look for how these chips will function in the real world when we start mm-hmm. using them effectively. So, so, so they drove the, the absolute precision and reliability of manufacturing. And, and they also, every, 
every manufacturing had to be perfect. I, my my favorite example is um, sorry. Well, I, I so this is interesting, like how much of an effect it had on the chips, for example, and and then other things like the clean room technology and so on. But there's other things that Apollo did that didn't sort of end up getting adopted very widely. Like, for example, uh, I think one of the points you make in your book is that Apollo was the biggest software project ever at the time. And uh, the methods they used to develop that software to make sure it was reliable enough were very different from everything done in software subsequently. Um, and, and, you know, subsequently software is not that reliable. I, I'm curious, like maybe, maybe you know why that didn't stick or were there other well, things could, that Apollo did that, that didn't stick or other things that were interesting that did stick? Yeah. I mean, I could give you a riff. Let me tell you one little story about the manufacturing, um, the, um, that, that I, that I was about to say, Sure. they took the top half of lunar module while they were manufacturing it and they turned it upside down in a huge framework and they would gently shit with a big white sheet spread on the ground underneath it to make sure that every single shaving and scrap and washer was out of the 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 space they, they were very careful all the way along you had to if you were going inside the lunar module to work on it or to test it, you had to boot up or you wore right, you know, right. a head cover, all the things we associate with. But still in the end, they took them and shook them upside down because if a little shitting got, stayed in the ship and started to float around in zero gravity, it could short out something. So, so there was this appreciation that, space was different and the demands of this kind of manufacturing were different. Now, in, in, in software, and I think some of that did, it not only migrated into um, computing and, you know, the, you, you read of how your, how your iPhone gets made, you, 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 those sneaks, whether they migrated directly or not, are, would be very, you know, what Apollo did would be from to the, to the iPhone people. And, and vice versa. The software was an incredibly demanding process, partly because they, the computers were small. They were the largest, most powerful computers in terms of memory capacity ever created at the time, but they only had 73K memory. So, so every single line had to work, had to do the work it was to do. There wasn't a lot of room for maneuvering and um, and every you were the computers on each mission same the the spaceship computer in the end module the spaceship computer in the lunar module but each mission was a different and these were computers without much of the rewritable memory we're so accustomed to most of the programming was literally hardwired into the computers right right and so. So each mission was a little different, and so the programming was a little different. There were, at one point at MIT, 650 people writing software for, for 11 missions. And, and there was no, it's much different than the software Microsoft Word or the software even that runs your, you know, that runs the transmission in your car or that runs your microwave oven. The, the stakes were very high for, for even a mm -hmm. small mistake. And so... It was, it was 
it was test, it was written, it was documented in this incredibly authoritative way so that you could go back and, and figure out instantly what, you know, what was happening in the code because there might be a moment in the mission when you needed to. And um, there's a wonderful example of that. In fact, a, a, a piece of solder, a piece from, from solder got loose in one of the missions. And, and I'm going to get it wrong. It's an even-numbered mission. It was either Apollo 12 or 14. And, and it lit up a switch in the lunar module. And, mm-hmm. and as would happen with going to the moon, the switch that this floating piece of metal kept toggling was the abort switch. Oh, Literally, no. the big red master abort button. If you're in trouble going to the moon, you press button, the spaceship takes takes over navigating and takes you back into orbit and safety. So a, 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 a combo flight controller is just like, hmm, that's not a button we want going on and off. And it was only active when you're flying to the moon and when you're flying back. So right. it was being toggled at their point. And there was a back and forth. Are you guys bang the, the abort button? Like that, you wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? It's right, not the right. kind of thing you would bang accidentally. A lot of back and forth, a lot of worry, because if you flying to the moon and the little subsolder closed the connection like it was doing before they started to fly to the moon, the mission was over. The abort switch would have made and they would go. The guy who wrote the code to fly to the moon was woken up one o'clock in the morning, scrambled to figure out how to fix this, and he rewrote the code in real time to tell the module that they'd already landed on the moon and, and thereby deactivate the abort button, even though they hadn't started flying to the moon. Oh, man. But you needed to be able to go into those line by line at that moment and know what we're doing. And yeah. so that why weren't, you know, I think, I think two things happened. I think first, NASA gets a lot of credit for helping create the idea of soft engineering. Margaret Hamilton, who's a, who's a, a legendary part of the program at MIT, she ended up, she, she came up through the ranks in Apollo program at MIT. And starting in 1970, she was in charge of all the flight software. So a woman in charge of all programmers for the last, uh, four or five moon landings, she she claims credit for popularizing the phrase uh, software engineering. She hmm. said when when we first started doing coding, and and I would use the phrase software engineering, people at great engineering university would really laugh at me, like you guys aren't engineers. In fact, it was it was a fun little aside. In those days, in 1961, 62, 63, software was spelled S-O-F-T-W-A-R and W-A-R-E, sort of interchangeably, and by computer companies and the New Times. And uh, so she kind of, she kind of spearheaded the language, and MIT really created a framework in which, just like, you designed a spacesuit, designed a rocket engine, designed thrusters and instruments, built, tested them. They either worked or didn't. Then you did it again and again. They brought that same discipline to software. And I think, I think Wolf, that is part of software culture, right? 
does it work? Is it documented? Test it. If it doesn't work, let's fix it. I think the thing that didn't um, migrate over was this insistence on perfection right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and I, I've written a lot of software that flies in space. I wrote, uh, uh, I got to spend a week with the people who wrote the software that flew space shuttle before I did, right. the, I, I did that. And, and software people tell you is, you know, if, if you want to spend the kind of money now has to make software perfect, we can software perfect, but your 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 microwave oven would cost four hundred dollars then, <laughs> and it wouldn't it wouldn't right. it wouldn't do anything for you. And so, so I think the framework migrated, and I don't know the history of big software projects in era, but I will tell you this: a lot of people who worked on a key software left and went off to found other software companies, and so. The software project that MIT ran for Apollo really was the seed ground for a lot of mm. uh, software development, and those people keep those ideas with them. When we think about uh, so, so one of the one of the um, the sort of insights that I found most compelling from the book was looking at the comparison between Vietnam and Apollo, and especially the the scale. I didn't know that there were three times as many Americans or potentially even more than that, that, that worked either directly or as a contractor on Apollo than had, um, had served in Vietnam. And I think when we think about the sixties now and in retrospect, we often fixate much more on the failures in Vietnam than on the success on the moon. Um, what, what do you think happened there? And, uh, and, do you think there's a lack of appreciation of just how big Apollo was as a as an employer, as a as a um, as a, this this force in a, in American economy? Oh, oh, it, it, it clearly there there clearly is a lack of an appreciation now. I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure there was. I, I think people had a sense of it then. I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's give people some numbers. So, um, at the highest level of um, American employment, 410,000 people were working on uh, Apollo back, back, back on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's extraordinary. That's actually more than we're fighting in Vietnam um, for most years of the war. Um, that was peak employment, but, but it was 250,000 or more for a bunch of years. Um, 410,000 people 20,000 companies uh, doing Apollo work. So you think about 400,000 people and, and their families, all of a sudden you're at, you know, one and a half to 2 million people directly involved. But um, I, my, uh, my godfather um, worked at a, at a big consulting company, um, a defense contracting consulting company in Boston in the 60s. He was doing missile guidance. He, he worked right next to an Apollo group that was doing guidance for the Apollo missions. So he, he was immersed in that world, even though he wasn't working on it. So it was a huge, um, it was a huge sort of force, I think, not just in the economy, but in, in people's consciousness. And it, you know, we, we've grown so accustomed to, to battering the government, um, but it was... Uh, Apollo was originally estimated to cost between 20 and $40 billion. 
and, and to get people to the moon by 1969. And that's exactly what happened. It was on time, on budget, actually in, in actual dollars spent at the time, 24 billion. So the low end of the 20 to 40 billion, we, we sort of live mm. in an era when somebody tells you something's gonna cost 20 to $40 billion. Yeah, it's like, it's oh, that be means 200 to 400 million. Right, right, exactly. And, um, and it was a success. It was 100% success. Even Apollo 13, which skated right. close to the edge of disaster, was turned into a success. And so th there, were, there were individual years of the Vietnam War that cost more in out-of-pocket dollars, single years that cost right. more than going to the moon. And so, so the, here was a program run by the government that did that, that was a pioneering you know technological uh uh sort of wrangle all the way to to the very end and um and it was on time on budget a success even as this other you know disaster was unfolding in slow motion a disaster literally in 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 warfare terms a, a disaster for the 55,000 american soldiers who died, a disaster for the millions of Vietnamese who died, and a disaster in terms of the actual mission, which was to, mm -hmm. to remind people of the, you know, who, who was going to be the victor in the Great Cold War. And so I, I think what's odd, what I tried to, to get at a little bit, and I'm not sure, I, 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 the book, I try and mix in a lot of what was going on in the world, because I think it's hard to appreciate going to the moon without the context of, of both Vietnam and the Rolling Stones. Um, these, this, was, this was the opposite in some ways of the Rolling Stones and the, and, and, and the sexual revolution and the student protests. It, mm -hmm. it was a bunch of people in white shirts, many of them 24 years old, but we somehow don't associate going to the moon with the 1960s, the way we do Woodstock or, you know, or mm. Vietnam or student protests or, or Kent State. But at the time, it was part and parcel of it. And uh, LBJ, who was a mixed record as a cultural observer, said all those things were revolutionary. This, the civil rights movement was revolutionary. Feminism was revolutionary. The sexual revolution, the music all revolutionary, but you know what was revolutionary? Flying to the moon was, was revolutionary. And, mm -hmm. and he was right. The fact that the, the people were wearing starched white shirts and, 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 um, and, and literally used slide rules didn't mean that what they were doing wasn't really pioneering. And so mm -hmm. it, it really was part and parcel of the 1960s. The, um, there was a huge civil rights protest at Cape Kennedy, the day before the Apollo 11 launch. And um, the head of NASA came out and met the leader of the civil rights protesters. And they actually sat and talked to each other for almost an hour. And then he invited the protesters into the VIP stands for the launch. And he asked them to pray for the astronauts. And, and they were saying, you know, the, the, the protest was pretty straightforward. People in America don't have enough to eat especially in the deep South, how can mm -hmm. we launch people to the moon? And right in front of the TV cameras, the head of NASA said, if we could not punch the launch button tomorrow, 
and solve these other problems as a result, there is no one in NASA who thinks going to the moon is more important than whether you have enough to eat. But I'm here to tell you that it's the opposite. We should use everything we've learned to help solve those problems back on Earth. We're not taking resources from the problems that need to be solved here on Earth. We want to be harnessed to solve those problems. It was kind of a, it, it, it was the kind of thing you, it would be hard to imagine happening today with a senior official from, from a government agency coming out to have a, mm. a civilized and thoughtful conversation with the people protesting what that agency was doing. And, and all the protesters showed up the next day and watched and watched the moon launch. So, you know, so it was, there was a little bit of a meeting of the mind. So that's like the, the 60s, I guess. And then I think one of, the, one of the claims you make in the book is that now is another sort of moment of high optimism in space travel and that, it, that it's sort of more optimistic now than it has been since then, um, you know, because of the efforts of, of projects like SpaceX and Blue Origin. So I'm, I'm curious, how far do you think that things are going to go? How, what, what's the vision of, of space travel right now? What's uh, why should we be optimistic about this? And how, how, uh, how much can we expect? <laughs> well, let's pause a minute and appreciate sure. that no one, the, 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 the International Space Station is a colossal achievement, right? Mm-hmm. And I think may, maybe the people listening today would have an appreciation of this, but, but we've had people living and working in space for 20 years every day. They're up there, right? There's six of them up there right now living and working in space. And that's amazing. But they're, they're exactly as far from earth as Orlando is from Miami, 240 miles whirling around. And, Mm -hmm. And no one's gone further than 240 miles since Apollo 17 came back which is right. just amazing, right? 50 years, right. we were promised the Jetsons. We were promised Star Trek. How come we're not living on, how come we're waiting for Elon Musk to get us to, to Mars? So mm-hmm. there is a, especially in the space community, there is a sense of, of lingering disappointment um, half a century on. How come this didn't take us where we want to go? And, and, and you can connect the dots directly. We didn't go to the moon because there was a good economic reason to go to the moon. We went to the moon because there was a really good political reason to go to the moon, Mm -hmm. the Cold War. And as we were going to the moon, the mission kind of took over the, the motivation itself. And just going to the moon, the pure human achievement, building the pyramids, you know, uh, took over. Um, Going to the moon was not like building the Panama Canal. Building the Panama Canal was this Herculean engineering achievement, not the same scale as going to the moon, but the same kind of idea. But there was this incredible economic motivation. Like we knew Mm -hmm. why we wanted the path. Like three countries mired themselves in the mud trying Mm -hmm. to get that canal built, right? For a reason. Mm -hmm. There was, we didn't go to the moon and discover, man, we got to bring 5,000 people back here quick. There is some stuff to do here. We went and literally after, after Apollo 13, then Apollo 14 was a lock, right? We got to 
Apollo 13 was a near disaster. We've got to go back and remind everybody we do this perfectly. But then Nixon wanted to stop right then. He said, what are we doing? Like, we just keep going back. What's the point? In fact, 15, 16, and 17 took a car. They took this remarkable lunar rover, which changed the science we could do. And so the, the last three really had a science component that was hugely significant. It changed what we learned going to the moon changed everything we knew about how the earth was formed and how the moon was formed and, and, and a lot about how the solar, the dynamics of the solar system. But there was no economic motivation. And that's why we haven't gone back. We don't have a lot of extra money to just go do cool things that are expensive mm -hmm. at this pace. What's driving Elon Musk and what's driving Jeff Bezos is exactly the opposite. It's pure economics. Bezos and Musk want to bring the cost of a, of a routine launch for payloads and people down from $100 million to a $1 million. Those mm -hmm. are both the, mm -hmm. the actual numbers and the scale. And, and, and they, they almost use the same language when you sit and talk to them. You have absolutely no idea. Like $100 million is a crazy amount of money. And, right. and you need you need to be able to make a lot of money by spending the hundred million for it to be worth spending the hundred million. A million bucks, pharmaceutical companies, engineering companies, factories spend a million bucks to equip people to make cars, make medicines, do scientific research all the time. A million bucks is a completely different amount of money and you can leverage a million bucks and you only need to make 10 million for it to look great. You don't need to make a billion, right? And so, so what's driving this new era is that Musk and Bezos have re-engineered space. And again, pe people listening may know the basics, but uh, until Musk and Bezos came along, we threw away every rocket after using it one time. What would the economics of Southwest Airlines be if they flew from Dallas to, to, um, to LaGuardia and then threw away the airplane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one would be able to afford it, right? right. These guys want to create the Southwest Airlines of space launch. And there, right now, there are about 100 space launches, rocket launches worldwide, 100, 100 space launches worldwide, actually fewer than 100 most years, for every nation, for every purpose a year. Yeah. Bezos has said he personally wants Blue Origin to do 100 a year, pretty soon, five years. You sort of like, well, if the whole world only needs 100 now, why would Blue Origin be at like the Tuesday and Friday Blue Origin launches to space? And Bezos's response is the same reason you want 500 megabit internet speed when you could have had 2400 baud, right? You have no idea what people will do if you could bring the price down. Right. And so I think this is actually, we are, we are on the verge of a step change in space. Here's a perfect example. There's an organization, there's a company that calls itself Planet, P-L-A-N-E-T. And Planet is a, a Silicon Valley startup that launches satellites into space. Here's what Planet does. Their, their satellites are about the size of a shoebox. Planet photographs every square foot of the Earth every single day, 
one mm-hmm. time. Your backyard, you know, Uganda, the the um, the Vatican, every square foot of land area every day at least once. That's how we know what's going on in North Korea because planet is busy photographing freight yards and train yards and movement of vehicles every single day. And that planet has sort of been around for about 10 years and it's, it's, it's a little bit below the radar screen for ordinary people, but every government, like every government agency, retail analysts hire planet before the pandemic to take picture, to, 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 to show them pictures of mall parking lots. December 10th this year, December 10th last mm. year, December 10th two years ago. Right, what right. are retail sales going to be like, right? Planet's only possible because they launch on SpaceX rockets that are cheap. It's accessible. I think they've raised a total of $400 million for the satellites and the launches, and they're photographing every square foot of Earth mm-hmm. every day. So th- what Bezos and Musk will tell you is we have no idea Who's going to be on the on the second Friday in May launch in in 2026? But if the price is a million bucks, there will be demand. We will we will create the demand by lowering the price. And so I think ten years from now, literally ten years from now, we've had six people in orbit for twenty years, not eight, not twelve, not twenty six. We we get six and they're and they're they're good to go. I think ten years from now there will be three or four or a dozen private space stations. And I think starting 10 years from now, it will be much more routine to go to space. It Mm -hmm. won't be quote unquote easy or safe, but you know, working on an offshore oil rig isn't necessarily easy or safe either, but the economics are such that it makes sense to do everything we need to do to get people out there. And I think there's, a, there's another startup that wants to make optical fiber in space. And they, are, they have units on the space station making test reels. You know, you're talking about 100 meters at a time of fiber to see how it works. And that fiber is 100 times faster than the fastest fiber we can make on Earth. Just routine in-space manufacturing. That's exactly the kind of thing people have been promising us for 40 years mm-hmm. and there it is and and their attitude is the space station belongs to the government that's a complicated place to do stuff get your act together and we'll make optical fiber that's 100 times faster than what we've got and people will definitely want it and the economics will be such that we can make it in space and bring it home so i think we are on the verge i think bezos and and musk are driving a space transportation revolution for which there appears to be no demand now, but for which the demand will blossom when the economics are transformed in that way. Mm -hmm. You guys are young enough that if you want to, both you, Wolf, and you, Matt, will be able to go to space if you want to as part of your career. Palladium Mars edition. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. (laughs) Palladium Mars edition. Exactly. (laughs) With that, I think uh, we'll move to audience questions. We have some great ones already in the queue. Um, The first one I wanted to ask you, Charles, comes from Jeff, who wants to know about the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. He asks, 
Why did the U.S. beat the USSR to the moon? What were the major factors? I'm interested in your thoughts on U.S. versus Soviet technological and scientific prowess, degree of government commitment, degree of funding, role of German scientists and technology. I mean, there's a lot of factors there. I think there's a there's a there's a fresh book there, Jeff. But right. <laughs> but look, the um, we we went to the moon because of the Russians. We went to the moon because of the Soviets, and we didn't have great. Uh, transparency into what was going on in the Soviet Union in in real time during the during the space race, and they they really they really and there, there's not many good phrases for this. They kicked our ass for many many years, right? Um, they launched Sputnik, which was this, you know, whatever it was, beach ball sized. It beeped. That was the by the way, the dawn of the computer beep. Literally, the first computer beep most people heard came from Sputnik and that beep, you could tune it in on a shortwave radio, all right. the TV and radio stations broadcast it. Um, but a month after Sputnik, um, the Russians uh, launched Sputnik 2, which had a, had a, um, a, a creature in it, a dog, mm -hmm. Laika. And, and we hadn't launched anything yet and they'd launched something that weighed a thousand pounds. And that was that was truly scary for Americans because it looked like the Russians were going to dominate the heavens and flash forward three years, four years. And, um, uh, Kennedy wakes up on, um, April 12th to the news that the Russians had launched Yuri Gagarin into space. Mm -hmm. Gagarin did a full orbit. Our first, it was typical of the era. Our first space launch came three weeks later, and we didn't launch anybody into orbit. We were later, and we weren't as good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just went up and down. And so for, um, for years, the Russians were ahead of us. The, the conventional historical wisdom, which I, which I am not in a position to challenge at all, is that, in fact, kind of Russian uh, bumbling, Russian sort of industrial inadequacy gave them this head start. We had much more sophisticated um, rocket technology, even in the late 50s. And so our, uh, and, and, and also mm. nuclear weapons technology. So our nuclear weapons were as precise and as powerful as theirs or more, but smaller. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't need big rockets to launch them. We had slightly, we had rockets with less launch capacity. Um, that were just as good at getting their payloads where they would have needed to go. They, they never needed to go there. And the Russians developed these big ICBMs, which gave them a head start. In fact, Yuri Gagarin, but also uh, Alan Shepard and John Glenn, all those people were launched atop nuclear missiles. Mm -hmm. What happened is that when the missions became more technologically demanding, sort of mm -hmm. as, as you got into two-seat spaceships, orbital rendezvous, the reliability necessary to go to the moon, be safe, enter orbit, get down to the moon, get back, and then get back, all of which requires incredible real-time computing, incredibly reliable, um, uh, not just data and data handling and math, but a huge network of, of data gathering. The, the NASA 
for Apollo, NASA created the first global high-speed data network. That alone, just the data network employed 2,500 people full-time. Well, the Soviets just didn't have the oomph to pull all that off. Um, so, so I think we were slow off the block, but the, the sort of both the organizational savvy of the United States and simply the, the manufacturing and industrial savvy eventually allowed us to overtake them. The, um, there's a wonderful story. It's sort of, there, there's so many of these wonderful stories lost to history. When Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins entered orbit around the moon to get ready for the first moon landing, there was a Soviet space probe in orbit at that moment around the moon. It had launched three days before Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins. It was called Luna 15. And Luna 15 was, was in, in fact, a very sophisticated mission. It was a robotic probe designed to land on the moon, dig a hole, bring back un, you know, uh, rocks and dirt that hadn't been tainted by the, the spaceship actually landing and, and blasting the surface with rocket fuel. And then the top half of Luna 15 was gonna blast back off from the moon and beat the Apollo astronauts back to Earth. And then the Russians would be able to say, look, we, we got moon rocks. We got them before the Americans. We didn't even need to send people. We just sent a robot. And um, it, was, it was a kind of a, it, it was a Hail Mary, except there were five identical, I think it's five, five identical spaceships, just like Luna 15. The first one failed. They didn't announce that one. The second one made it to the moon. And, and a reminder how early this was in our understanding of geography and navigation while Armstrong and Aldrin were walking around on the moon, were landing on the moon and getting ready to walk, Luna 15 slammed into a mountain on the moon as it was trying to land. A mountain that, God bless them, the Soviet mission planners didn't know existed. <laughs> that was the end of Luna 15. <laughs> but in fact, a year later, that one of the, one of the remaining identical probes went to the moon scooped up the rocks and flew back, doing something in fact at that moment that the American space program didn't have the robotic capability to do. Now we flew humans to the moon, so if we'd paid attention to it, we could have. So the, the Russians were sort of chasing us right to the end, but it was much more of a stretch in terms of resources and the kind of manufacturing capability necessary and, and sort of after the fact, we know there was a lot of complicated history. They lost the head of their space program right in the middle. Organizations matter, but individuals matter yeah, as that, well. That, right. That, that's Korolev died in 1966, right. I think. Right. And, mm -hmm. and let's, let's pause one moment, though, and say for the last nine years, Americans have gone to the International Space Station on a regular basis on a Soviet, on a Russian spaceship. Soyuz, we have no, until SpaceX launched a month ago or eight weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, with two astronauts, we had no capability to launch people since we retired the space shuttle. So the, the country that beat the Russians to the moon has for the last nine years relied on the Russians to fly us into space using a spaceship designed in 1966 or 1967. <laughs> right. So they, they, did, they do get a version of the last laugh, at least for a little while.
Yeah, until Elon gets to them. <laughs> until Elon, until Elon comes along, exactly. I got to go shorter. You got questions piling up. Yeah, yeah. No, we we got a lot of questions for sure. Okay, so Stephen Pimentel asks: To what extent has Amazon extended the so-called Walmart effect, and what if what effect will this have on the U.S. economy going forward? And can you explain, of course, what the Walmart effect is? Switching <laughs> gears a bit, but I think you know it's related on the question of uh, yeah. Bezos, certainly. Right. Right. Uh, Somebody knows the Fishman Ouvoir. Yeah. But, but I guess um, the, the connection here, of course, is, is uh, we're talking about American grant projects in general, right? So, so uh, we're obviously focusing on Apollo, but there are all, the, all these other sort of big projects that end up driving the economy uh, mm -hmm. in a significant way, like Walmart. Right. And, and Walmart, Walmart was, Walmart transformed the American economy. Walmart transformed the way Americans think about price, about quality, about shopping. Um, we think nothing of buying uh, sweat socks and chicken breasts and putting them in the same shopping cart. That did not happen before Walmart. Um, and, and so, look, the, the first thing to say is that it's easy to underestimate. And so the Walmart effect is a book I wrote about the impact Walmart had across the U.S. economy on all those things. Walmart single-handedly during the during the heyday 70s and 80s single-handedly held the u.s inflation rate down for the entire nation by about a point for many years in a row that's that's an extraordinary achievement for for an individual company and all kinds of impacts from walmart good and bad keeping prices from rising for everybody uh is, is arguably a, a benefit for all kinds of people even if you didn't shop at walmart even if you literally resisted shopping at Walmart, you actually benefited. Um, and, and Walmart is still about 30% bigger than 40% bigger than Amazon, which most people find surprising. Mm -hmm. um, but, but Walmart's at $525 billion in business a year. Uh, Amazon's, I think Amazon's at about 280 300 right there billion so so big but but Walmart remains the behemoth in terms of pure dollars but but Stephen asks a, a, a spot-on question in in the years of, of of Walmart's super growth Walmart's only growing at the rate of the economy now or just a little faster but but for for decades Walmart grew at twice or three times the pace of the economy Walmart set the rules of the retail uh, enterprise. Everybody else, the people who made products and Walmart's competitors who sold them had to follow the rules that Walmart was creating. Walmart created the ecosystem. Amazon is smaller, um, uh, if, if it's possible to use the word smaller in reference to either of these organizations, um, but Amazon is setting the rules of that ecosystem now and Walmart is desperately playing catch up um, uh, all the time in terms of the online world. And so Amazon is actually exercising exactly the same kind of power alongside Walmart that Walmart used to. Amazon sets prices. Amazon um, digs in and dictates terms to big consumer products companies. We want it like this. We want it in this packaging. We want it in this size. We want it available in this way at this pace. Um, and, and that's something that Walmart did for years and years. I think Walmart, uh, Amazon hasn't won the battle in, in, in any sense. In fact, 
the pandemic is great for both organizations, but, but what the pandemic has really done is teach Amazon's customers to, I'm sorry, what the pandemic has really done is teach Walmart's customers to order their products online, which they had not been doing that much previously. Mm-hmm. Walmart's digital business, walmart.com, in the, in the first quarter of this year, first quarter, maybe it's the second quarter, in, in the pandemic quarter, grew 70%, which is just extraordinary. Now, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's small. It's still compared to, if you just take walmart.com and compare it to amazon.com, if you just compare online shopping at Walmart to online shopping at Amazon, Amazon's eight times bigger. <laughs> Amazon mm-hmm. sells a lot more stuff online than Walmart does. But at the end of this year, it'll only be a factor of six because of how fast Walmart is growing. So in the short term, consumers are going to benefit from the Walmart effect migrating to the Amazon effect in terms of two big companies who, who, want, the business, who want your business and want to find ways to make the shopping experience good in terms of delivery times, in terms of price, in terms of selection. The, the longer term is a, little, is a little fuzzier because Walmart's long-term impact, as I, as I spend a lot of time in the book tracing, has been really corrosive. Walmart drove this mission to make things cheap, but also kind of crappy. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can buy a microwave oven for $59, but if it breaks in three years, which it may well, there's no repairman who will repair it for less than $69. So the repairman himself will say, just throw this thing away and buy a new one. What do you need me for? Right. Um, and that, and when you have two companies driving that kind of dynamic, mm. I'm not sure that's going to be great long-term for the, the quality, the robustness for American manufacturing and those kinds of things. But Amazon is, is playing the role Walmart played. And, and at least in terms of getting your stuff to your house tomorrow, um, even if you order it at 8.30 at night, it, it, in the short term, it'll have a, a, a valuable impact. Jeremy asks, uh, funding for Apollo was very contentious at the time. I'm curious about the differences in the politics of Apollo versus some of the big Western water projects where the payoff was more obvious. <laughs> oh, my God, Jeremy, you're, 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 you're mixing remarkable worlds based, based on the titles of my book. So, so you make a really good point. And, and, it, and, and one of the things that's sort of lost in our hazy nostalgia about going to the moon, about Apollo, the polling, um, the polling of the American public in the 1960s was much less um, routine and regimented than it was today. We poll everything mm-hmm. all the time. Every Tuesday, there's a new poll about whatever. Mm-hmm. There, Gallup took a poll every week and, and, and newspapers ran a column, the Gallup poll, whatever it is, every Sunday. And, and it's easy to go back and read those and they're fascinating. And the political races were polled, not with the intensity that we poll today, but with plenty of intensity. The question of whether to go to the moon was only polled probably five or six times during the 1960s total by Gallup and Harris at no point did even half of Americans think going to the moon was a good idea. Um, 
And, and that was particularly true when you said, when you phrased the question, America is spending $14 billion going to the moon to beat the Russians. Is this A, a good use of money, mm -hmm. B, a use of money that could be used for other, you know, like that. When you phrased it, when you told Americans what it was costing, they always said it wasn't worth it. Um, so, so public support, we have this image that we loved going to the moon. It was, you know, the, 600 million people watched that first moon landing on TV. Um, it, was, it was a hugely absorbing event as it happened, but it wasn't, it wasn't hugely popular. And in fact, right after Kennedy's speech, um, right after Yuri Gagarin went into space and then we went into space and then Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, almost universal support in Congress. Within literally 18 months, two years, Congress was like, what, what is taking so long? Like this is, this is costing a lot of money. When are we going to get there already? And, mm -hmm. and it had all been laid out. Like there was no, there were no broken promises in 1963, right. but Americans didn't have any more of an attention span then than we do now. In, in fact, it's, it's a little sad to say, but when Kennedy was assassinated, LBJ used Kennedy's commitment to going to the moon as, as a kind of memorial to get, to sort of strong arm the money to keep mm -hmm. Apollo going. Here's, here's an example of how remarkable the sort of positioning was. Jackie Kennedy, met with LBJ on the day before uh, Thanksgiving, on Wednesday, in the White House. And, that, and, and, and John Kennedy had been killed the previous Friday. So this was five, six days after the assassination. They were still living in the White House. She met with LBJ in the Oval Office um, uh, to say thank you for, for what you've done for my husband and the nation and for my family and we're going we're gonna to stick around here in the White House for another week or two, if that's okay. And at that meeting, which lasted 15 minutes, she said to President Johnson, I would like you to rename Cape Canaveral Cape Kennedy in honor of my husband, the president. And LBJ was so captivated by the idea that he picked up the phone and called the governor of Florida during the meeting. Hey, it's Johnson here. We got this great idea. And the next morning, he announced to the nation at his Thanksgiving address, imagine having to give a Thanksgiving speech six days after the assassination of John Kennedy. As part of that speech, he said, we are renaming Cape Canaveral and the spaceport, America's spaceport, after uh, President Kennedy. So, so he kind of locked in. She, uh, uh, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, was was intently focused, whole books have been written about this, on her husband's legacy. And she knew that if we landed on the moon, he needed to be part of that. His his role needed not to be lost. And 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 what remarkable savvy and presence of mind to ask Johnson to to name the the spaceport after her husband. And uh, and on uh, he announced it on Thursday and on Friday the signs were painted and, and hung uh, at, at the newly renamed Cape Kennedy. So, um, so the, the funding ended up, uh, it, it, was, it was a challenge for Johnson, 
But uh, space funding peaked in, uh, he was killed in 63, 64, the budget year 65. I think funding peaked in 65, 66. And then the funding tailed off even as the missions picked up because the hard work was in building rockets and spaceships and you had to pay those mm -hmm. people while you were doing it. And, and then the missions came a little later, but the employment and the spending started to tail off in 68, 69 and 70. So, so he, I, I'm not sure we would have gone on time or at all if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, sadly. How this compares to, 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 the, to the Western water projects, all I'll say about that is sort of to tap the same theme from earlier in our conversation. The Western water projects had this incredible coalition of economic interests behind them. Farmers, land developers, miners. Here's what we're going to make the desert bloom. And so that money was motivated in a different way. It was, it was a great land sale and, and it worked. You know, we're still, the, the parts of California we live in, we only live in because of the, the great Western water projects. So speaking of budget, budget pressure, uh, Stephen Pimentel asks, to what extent was the Apollo program killed by budgetary pressure from the Vietnam War and the Great Society? In a word, was, it, was space killed by too much guns and butter? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, um, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I think, I think um, the, the moon, I think the moon landings themselves had plenty of excitement for a while, but even, even they um, tailed off the, I, I may get the mission wrong, but, but it's in the book, the final moon landing, the moonwalks of Apollo 17, that week's episode of All in the Family had higher viewership than the astronauts walking around on the moon. Yeah, those guys are doing it again. I, I, wanna, I wanna watch Archie Bunker. Um, right. and, and so, yes, the Vietnam War cost an incredible sum of money, 10 times what going to the moon cost, right? And, and happened right in parallel along the same lines. And the Great Society programs were productive, but they too were expensive. But, but there wasn't a really coherent argument for what we were supposed to be doing in space and why we should be spending the money. And so I think what really um, deflated the space program in the 1970s, and, and I'm not sure this is always popular with, with you know, long tenured space historians, but it was just a lack of vision. It was a lack right. of, of, um, of, of, a, of a persuasive vision of what we were gonna be doing, how it would be valuable and um, and why it was worth money. And here's the steps along with, you know, Americans, the, 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 the Chinese are embarked on an incredible 20 year program to get Chinese astronauts into space, to build a little space station, to go and land on the moon. And you know what, if you look at year one and year three and year seven and year nine, and you look at the plan and you look at what they did, they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And nobody's screaming in year 11, this is boring. Why are we doing this? They're just chugging along. We aren't that good at those kinds of programs, but we didn't actually get a good argument. And 
people often say, you know, God, the, the era of exploration of, of the world, Magellan, Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark were on an economic mission, ladies and gentlemen. They were out there, right. you know, writing down everything that we could go exploit and warning the, the native tribes that we were coming. They, there was, mm -hmm. I read this whole account. The, the story of the flag on the moon is really funny. NASA almost forgot to take a flag and had to scramble right at the last minute to construct a flag that would fly. It's got a little curtain rod that you pull the flag out under. The flag mm -hmm. rode outside the lunar module because it was designed and made so late. And I, I ended up going and reading about flags through history and the flags Lewis and Clark took. And Lewis and Clark packed 46 flags of this size and, and 19 flags of this size. They flew a flag at every one of their campsites. Well, they weren't celebrating, you know, this and that. They were warning people, these are the folks who are coming. You're going to want to, you're going to want to work with us. Uh, and, and so there wasn't a great economic argument for going into space at that moment, except for weather satellites and communication satellites and stuff like that. And so lots of other things uh, ended up taking precedence whether they should have or not, we're going to, that's what I, you know, that's why I think what's happening now is a lot more sustainable because mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be built on people who see economic value in going to space, investing, and then spending money to make it happen. Right. Like Elon's theory with the spaceship is that it's going to, the, the, sorry, the starship is that it's going to pay for itself with the internet satellites. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, wh whether all that comes to be exactly the way he said, Elon Musk is, is flying human beings into space in a spaceship that he and his engineers designed from scratch. And so th th I, would, I would listen closely to what he's arguing for simply because he's developing quite an impressive yeah. track record of, of doing amazing things. So I, I have a question on the impact of Apollo with respect to SpaceX and Blue Origin. Um, how much are they building on the technological and institutional legacy of Apollo versus having to sort of reinvent things from scratch? I mean, I've heard some interesting anecdotes like uh, Blue Origin going and recovering one of the Saturn V boosters to, to, get, to get an example to work from. Um, and then, of course, I imagine they're all working through the NASA documentation. I'm curious how much you know about uh, how, how much they're actually drawing from the Apollo legacy? Well, the, the head, of, the head of, of rocket propulsion for Blue Origin used to do rocket propulsion for the space shuttle main engines. So they hired, they hired, they hired somebody with, with real oomph. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. The two um, SpaceX astronauts, who are on the space station right now, the first two astronauts launched on a private vehicle into space, they were, they are NASA astronauts on sort of mm -hmm. on, on assignment to SpaceX. And they're both deeply experienced space shuttle astronauts. They both have um, two space shuttle missions. Um, uh, one of them commanded a space shuttle mission. So they're deep in the NASA culture. And, and NASA's pretty conservative about changing things. You know, if, if, okay, tell us what you think we could do better. We'll, we'll run some tests on that and see what we can do. And what, and what those guys said in their pre-launch 
press conferences with reporters is we've seen SpaceX. Like we, we, one of the things we were assigned to do by NASA is, is help you design the interior of a modern spaceship. Uh, the SpaceX uh, Dragon capsules, all touch screen, a mm -hmm. few, a few physical switches, but it's, it's operated the way an iPad is operated, which, which took incredible engineering and, and, and lots of human factors work, you know, how should it work? We're going to be mm -hmm. in zero G you, you need things to be predictable. You need to not have to think I'm going to reach for this. It's going to do what I need it to do in a split second. And they said, we have seen, we have made suggestions to SpaceX engineers and had changes made in eight weeks, taking those suggestions seriously that would not have happened in two years at NASA. So the culture of SpaceX and Blue Origin is going to be very different in exactly that way. We have confidence in our engineering. We, we understand the risks. We're not afraid to iterate. Um, but it, um, Wolf, what you said, well, <laughs> Jeff Bezos paid to recover a Saturn V um, a cluster of Saturn V engines, but not so, not, not so Blue Origin could study them, I don't think. He, he just thought it was important to get that artifact back. And, and, you know, Jeff Bezos, if he decides something is important, he can spend $300 million. Um, but what's interesting is that when you talk to the engineers at, at Blue Origin and at SpaceX about their own work now, they will say, they, they always ask the question, how did NASA do it? How did Apollo do it? How did shuttle do it? Let's go read the documents because what they've discovered is that those men and women were not only super smart, they were great engineers and they often came up with the right solution, even adjusting for material science and so forth. The physics of flying in space hasn't changed. And so however much they advance the cause and, and having if there's anybody in the audience who hasn't watched the SpaceX and Blue Origin rockets fly back from space and land, bolt upright, perfectly on the ground, it is a thrilling thing to see mm -hmm. a rocket land butt down, <laughs> right? You know, in the case of Blue Origin, not far from where it took off. It is amazing. Go on YouTube and just Google SpaceX landing, uh, mm -hmm. Blue Origin landing notwithstanding what they've done to revolutionize rocket travel, they, they clearly have not just tremendous respect for, for what's been done, they go check it out. All, you know, all that documentation is available, it's public domain. And, and, um, and, and you know, sometimes, sometimes even, even given the advances, there are things there that, that, that inform how they do it now. So I, what would Apollo do? What would NASA do? Is, is, a, is a little bit of a slogan inside both those engineering cultures. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to know how much in the landing uh, development, how much they drew on, on say like the, the uh, X program in the early 90s where they landed a, a rocket on its tail um, using I, an F-16 avionics system? Yeah, I do not. My okay. bet is they, they went and looked at that, but that landing landing butt down like that is a uh, is something NASA didn't do <laughs> yeah. and the and the, and the key to that is is the design of the rocket so that the aerodynamics work coming back and you've got 
the right kind of fins and controls, and then incredible um, computing power. You know, you need right. you, you, the rocket really needs to know where it is and be oriented in space as it's coming down and be in control of its trajectory in a in a remarkable way, and then and then getting getting the thing to be you know bolt upright right. requires really fine tuning of rocket thrust in a way that we didn't have to <laughs> go in any other direction. So I, I don't know, but my bet is that the engineering of that particular thing is, is, is where they both kind of pioneered. I think we have time for just one or two more questions. Um, Marco asks, and I believe he's sort of referencing um, your points about the geopolitical um, motivations behind the space race for Apollo, but also I think what you said more recently about, um, about the Chinese space program as well, that might be a, th a thread here. He says, could we re-engineer conditions to motivate space advancement on a political basis again? And if so, how potentially, I guess <laughs> some, some folks are calling it a new cold war with China, but is that enough to motivate, um, space along some dimension as well? Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it, I would say, re-engineer. Certainly, Donald Trump has tried to use political motivation and sort of rallying Americans to the cause on behalf of this idea that NASA's going to land people back on the moon by 2025. And, and there, isn't, there isn't a strong economic reason to do that, the, the reason to go back to the moon in fact, is to get ready to go to Mars. We don't, mm -hmm. Elon Musk notwithstanding, we don't have any idea how to fly to Mars. We, right. are, we, are, as, we are as innocent of, of, of what we need to know to go to Mars in 2020, in some ways, as we were of going to the moon in 1961. Right. Um, I guess what Marco's asking is, could there be a, a space rivalry like mm -hmm. there was in the 1960s that would motivate a government space program like NASA or, or private industry to compete with the Chinese. And I think, I think there could be, I, I, I don't know nearly enough about China, the politics of what's going on between mm -hmm. the U S and China and, and Chinese space program to know if we're going to end up feeling like we have to challenge the Chinese in space as their program advances. Could China start to use its space program as a way of demonstrating its um, technological prowess and, and, and its sort of rightful place on the global stage? Absolutely 100%. Um, what I would say is that I, I, I'm not sure that would spark the United States in the same way that the rivalry with the Russians sparked going to the moon. Going to Mars is a really complicated, really demanding project. And, and Trump has already said, we're going back to the moon. So if the Chinese kind of put the gas pedal down and say, we're gonna go to the moon and here's when, in fact, NASA is kind of laying the groundwork to do that now. I, I'm a little skeptical of this 2025, we're going to the moon, right, Artemis right. project. Right. Um, all you have to do is look at the, the budget. We, we, <laughs> Trump wants to do it in, in half the time we did it originally. 
and he's spending, relatively speaking, one third for what going to the moon cost the first time. And there's no there's no economies. You can't just dust off the Saturn V and the lunar exactly. It's, yeah, it's right. a very different world. But if we decided that we weren't going to let the Chinese beat us to the moon, we could we could kick it into gear. I think I think what's going to happen is that the, the next Amer the next sort of horizon of American technological prowess is going to be in near Earth orbit. Is going to be mm -hmm. all this stuff going on in space, and I think that's going to be impressive enough that that people are going to want to join up to that as opposed mm -hmm. to simply chasing chasing big goals. Mm -hmm. So we have time for one more question. Uh, this one from Jeff again. Uh, to what degree did the Apollo project support U.S. military capacity, for example, with ICBMs? To what degree was this a motivation in choosing to go to the moon? Well, that's a really, that's a great question. The, the Eisenhower did this remarkable thing in, in determinedly separating the, the American space effort, effort from the military, um, at least in the, in the early days. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Apollo was, in fact, determinedly separate from the American military establishment during the years we went to the moon. Um, a lot of, let, let's go back a half step, Jeff. A lot of the technology that allowed us to go to the moon, especially the navigational technology out of MIT, literally the gyroscopes and the um, navigational computers, all that stuff was developed at MIT. It was developed to fly nuclear weapons. It was developed to mm -hmm. fly, to, uh, to navigate um, the, the early nuclear submarines. The first nuclear submarine to, 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 to pass under the North Pole had an MIT computer and navigation engineer on board during that mission. So the, the military technology and the work, the development work that had been done migrated into the space program. And, and there's no question that all of these big defense contractors, Northrop Grumman, North American Aviation, all everything that was done at Draper Labs, which, which became independent um, from MIT as the moon landings um, uh, ended, that stuff migrated right back into the military. Draper, which was a division of MIT during the moon landings, most of their work is defense work now. Um, and during the shuttle era, uh, NASA certainly had a partnership, a kind of, at least in public terms, a sort of below the radar uh, partnership with the military, launching secret military satellites. Um, uh, and and the, the military has its own space shuttle, which we know almost nothing about. It's unmanned, a kind of, looks like a miniature version of the actual space shuttle. And there's nothing but speculation about what the military does with it when it's in orbit. Um, so I think I think there's there was a lot of cross pollination in in advance and then afterward. I I don't I I I didn't find anything in my four years of research that would indicate that the military was sort of secretly behind this um, or that um, NASA was secretly reinfusing its technology into the military to do 
to do things that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. But it's simply that what got developed to go to the moon turned out mm. to be useful in all kinds of ways in the military, and it and it absolutely migrated over there. Yeah, there's one there's one comment on that question that actually I'd love to read out because it it seems so relevant here. So John says uh, it was absolutely huge, not just the ICBMs, computers, lasers, GPS, plastics, CNC machines, everything. Someone once made the note that the true combination of the technological advancements of Apollo was actually Desert Storm because of the technological advantages like night vision, precision weapons, stealth, composite armor tanks. Um, we, beat the, we beat Iraq's sort of Soviet model army, all based on Apollo <laughs> tech, if you, if you traced it back. Okay, I'll go with John. John answered the question better, better than I did. I mean, yes, of course, the, the GPS... That, that guides you to the, you know, to the nearest uh, 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 steak and shake or In-N-Out burger or whatever, that, that was all military technology to start. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually there's there, a legacy some people might not know. Civilian GPS is fuzzed up a little bit. The yeah. military gets a, a much cleaner version, a much more precise version of GPS navigational technology. So there's still a military component. So yes, that is, that is all true. The, the, the kind of things that were developed to make Apollo and then, and then shuttle in terms of, of, um, of material science possible infused right back into the military. And in some ways the military took it and ran in a way that the space program didn't have the resources or the vision to. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So we're just about out of time for the formal portion. So Charles, many thanks for joining us. Uh, this was Thank a fascinating you. discussion. Let me, let me uh, have one final word. We didn't, okay, go we for it. Didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't wheel around into this zone, but the whole point of retelling this story for me last year was the 50th anniversary. So I, I wrote the book, one giant leap to tell the story from the perspective of those 400,000 people back on earth. And, right. and there were great scientists and great engineers, but the remarkable thing is that the spacesuits were hand sewn by, by women using singer sewing machines in a factory in Dover, Delaware. The computer software for the most advanced computer, there were no disk drives, there were no flash drives, there was no actual computer memory of the sort we think of. The, the computer software was hand woven one mm -hmm. wire at a time by women in uh, former textile workers in a factory in Waltham, Massachusetts. So it was a, in some ways it was this remarkable all hands on deck effort. And, and being able to look at it from the perspective of the people who made it happen back on earth, it, it's not only no disrespect to the astronauts, the astronauts were then, and to this day, the ones who are still alive would tell you, we, we got to go, our jobs were hard, we couldn't have done it without the people who actually built all of the things, all the technology we relied on. And so, and so I, that's the sense in which One Giant Leap is a mm -hmm. little different book. The astronauts are characters, but the, but the book really focuses on the people who made the mission possible back on Earth. And I, so I just wanted to say that's sort of Great. the point of retelling the story. Right. And yeah, and th so thanks again for the audience uh, to, for joining us. And, and just to reiterate, the book is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Uh, I think there's a new paperback edition will be released in September 22nd. 
and contains with a new, a new chap- chapter. Yeah, a new chapter right. about space travel today. Uh, so it's available for pre-order now. If you enjoyed the salon and are not already a Palladium member, please be sure to sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe to get invited to future events and participate in the community. So thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. 